3: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept
1: most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: Sin Carriers, a West Side fairy tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further... It takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. on Sin Carriers. Pursued by ruthless picketing agents to the Sierra Nevadas, our travelers have been ambushed, cornered, and threatened with death and incarceration. Far back along the line, the enigmatic rider had a one-sided conversation with the first of the delivered wood piles, which remained inert until his departure, before hatching something grotesque. The despicable Colt Wickless thought he'd found an easy victim in typewriter salesman Biggie Melones but soon discovered the young man packed quite a wallop. Though things nearly got out of hand, it was clear once Garvey intervened who was the most respected amongst the drivers. In the security car, the old priest Mildover Kane taught Elam Price, a young Native American accountant, the ins and outs of working a rifle. After arriving, Tolliver is reunited with an old professional acquaintance he'd clearly rather not be seeing again. This man, known simply by his moniker, The Must, has little love for Tolliver, but their reunion is cut short by a gunshot as the Pinkerton leader, a man named Clinton, attempts to begin negotiations for surrender of the train. But just as it seems he has the upper hand, the tall and deadly Gatto strides out of the dark with the decapitated head of one of Clinton's men. Soon after, another of his men is shot, and we are thrust into the heart of a night of violence, bloodshed, and gun smoke. Will our travelers prevail unscathed? Or will the Pinkerton assault prove too much? Find out now on episode five of Sin Carriers. Shootout. Elam lay on his back, coughing and then slapping away the priest's hand when the man tried to help him to his feet. The moon seemed oddly large tonight, swollen despite not being fully round. The priest got a grip on Elam's shirt front and pulled the younger man to his feet anyway, patting him on the back and pointing in the direction they needed to go. To their right, the train rolled on through the dark, wheels finally squealing to a stop in the small mining village. I told you to roll when you landed. The priest whispered, keeping his head low and pulling Elam along with him. Elam tried to talk back to the man, but he could barely breathe, much less speak. He'd expected the ground to be moving when he'd jumped off the train, but there was no preparing for the speed at which it had been ripped from underneath him. He'd caught his heels in the dirt the second he touched the ground, and the momentum slammed him on his back, knocking the wind out of him. The priest had landed a ways up the rails, rolling like a barrel and springing to his feet in a second before jogging to Elam. I did roll! Elam finally hissed. The priest gave him a look and patted the air with his hands. Be quiet, that gesture said in no uncertain terms. Elam, still only barely able to disobey, focused on regaining his breath as quietly as possible. Dark fingers of leafless shrubs and the prickly arms of the pine trees clawed at his clothing, at the rifle clinking lightly on its strap over his shoulder. The priest seemed to have no trouble at all navigating, Elam was nearly completely blind. "'Neil, don't move until I tell you,' the priest whispered, pulling Elam down into the scratchy embrace of a bush a few dozen paces from the back wall of the closest building. Aside from the scrape of foliage against his clothing, Elam could hear nothing but the wind and the myriad mechanical sounds of the train. People moved in the building ahead of them, decoupling train cars and moving them onto the rail spur inside the village." Village was a generous word for the collection of rough buildings in front of them. There were only four or five, all long and lean and made of badly carpentered local wood. The lanterns inside the structures poured thin slashes of light into the surrounding forest. A particularly bright one caught across Elam's and the priest's faces, bisecting the priest's horrible cross-shaped burn and blinding Elam when he shifted the wrong way. The priest grabbed Elam's wrist and squeezed hard enough to hurt him. He opened his mouth to protest, but kept it shut when he heard the sounds of movement behind him. Men, a dozen or more, shuffled quietly on horseback through the trees, cursing idly at snapping, snagging branches and sharing orders and ideas on how to proceed. Elam tried to move his hand to the rifle as they approached, but the priest held him steady. The man was no less still than a stone, and so dark amongst the branches that Elam had trouble seeing him, even inches away. Then the ground rumbled gently under Elam's knees, and he realized the men were overtop him. A horse's hoof landed just beside his foot, depressing the earth so fully Elam almost lost balance. Then he saw the beast's foreleg strike the priest's right shoulder, sending the man swaying to the left. The impact was hard enough to make a soft thump, but neither the rider nor the horse seemed to notice they'd hit anything but more foliage. The priest rocked back into place in rhythm with the branches overhead. And for a moment, Elam worried he'd actually lost the priest and this was just some illusion of the forest. Then the closest man had gone, and the priest turned to him with a grim expression. Close, huh? Those eyes asked. Elam nodded. The older man pointed to where the men were gathering against the side of a building. The bob of their heads and shoulders told Elam they were discussing something, though the conversation was short and to the point. Then the group split in three, with half the men heading for the train and the other two quarters splitting up around the building. Elam watched as some of them dismounted their horses and staked the animals to the ground by their reins. What now? Elam asked. The plan... As it stood, it had been something thrown together by the priest, the woman, and the Castiano. She would stay on the train with Ducky, the black boy, and the priest would come round back with Elam. The Castellano didn't really add anything at the time, just smiled and nodded along, eventually deciding for himself that he'd go around the front of the train and do what needed doing. Well, the priest said, We're probably going to have to shoot most of them, or at least enough so the others give up on the train. Jesus, Elam said to himself. The priest gave him a long look, broken only by short, sharp glances in the direction of the men's horses. Just stay with me, the priest said. You don't have to shoot anybody, but bring along your ammo and rifle in case I need it. If the worst happens, though... You'll still have to use it. Elam nodded and followed when the priest crept out of the trees toward the horses. The men had gone completely, though there was a silence and light scuffling inside the building that sounded different from before. Over those sounds, the constant noise of the train remained plenty loud enough for he and the priest to move around. Up this way, I think. The priest said, climbing a stack of barrels and rope to roll himself onto the steeply pitched roof of the closest building. Elam looked around and took a deep breath. Hearing so much loud and in constant noise, he couldn't make sense of what was going on and when he should move. The priest held down a hand and Elam followed him onto the roof. The structure wasn't made of whole materials, but strapped together with anything the locals could find. Lengths of corrugated steel were nailed down over clapboard strips and whole sides of shipping crates still bearing names and destinations. Most of them bore the same labeling, Dunbarton, which came up again and again as the priest's moon-born shadow slid long and sharp over the roof toward the gable. Then they were there, he on the left and the priest on the right, elbows dangling over the lip of the roof's upper angle and bodies surprisingly comfortable, laying flat against the still warm makeshift shingle work. Cock it now, the priest said to Elam without looking at him. The man's eyes were only for the scene spreading out beneath them. After a moment of fumbling, the priest reached over and flicked Elam's safety off, allowing him to rack the bolt. Something about the feel of the smooth brass sliding off the stack of ammunition and into the chamber spread chills over Elam's arms and neck. His eyes adjusted, and the night opened beneath him. A great, rectangular field of dirt stretched to the far blackness of the tree line, trussed through with the fossils of long-gone rainy days. Rut marks and footprints filled with dry dust lay along the perimeters where traffic was the lightest. And where it was not, these artifices were flattened and left to catch thin pools of shadow cast by moonlight. Their ruffles and indentations were like a shallow, slush-laden river, and the most recent dusty footprints marked the tide. Keep your finger off the trigger unless you plan to kill something, the priest said in a low voice. He might have been whispering, but up here the sound was thinner. The world was distant. A man stepped around the corner of the building they were seated on and jogged toward the men reattaching the rear cars to the train. Four men flicked out of the darkness and joined him, though they came back up on the other side of the cars. Then three of the men were leading the workers back to the building with their hands over their heads. The other two exchanged a look and then crept aboard the back of the train. Elam realized he was following them with the tip of his rifle. Do you see the little post of the side at the end of the weapon? The priest asked. He was tracking something as well. So intently, Elam almost thought the priest wasn't speaking to him. Yes, Elam whispered. You line that up with the flat part in the back so it makes an even horizon, the priest said. The way he spoke, Elam felt the man was giving himself the lesson as well. The front piece is where the bullet goes. Breathe out slowly and squeeze slower when you pull the trigger. Don't focus on your target, just watch the sight. Okay, Elam said in a low voice. We're behind all of them. The priest said. His tone was cold, distant. They'd have to be better than the best to hit us up here with any of what they're packing. But people get lucky every day. Tuck your head back if you're not trying to shoot anything, or if you're reloading. Okay, Elam said. There are about ten sitting behind that building to the right, the priest said. Elam tried to turn his rifle in that direction, and the priest touched his hand lightly. Keep that section for yourself. Draw a line between us and your mind, and keep an eye on your side. Front and back, okay? That'll keep us from working too far over top each other. Okay, Elam said. There's a man on horseback here now. Two of them, actually. One of them has a gun out. The man shot into the air, and they both flinched. Elam wondered if he'd feel the bullet strike him from the sky in a few minutes like a hot, errant raindrop. For some reason right then, he thought of old Miss Pruitt, her thumbs searching over his teeth. He spat, or tried to, managing only to wet his sleeve. You are the pride of this home, Elam. Tolliver and some odd-looking fellow just came out of the far building. The priest said, I think they're all talking to each other. What about? Elam asked, not expecting an answer. At this point, surrender, most likely. The priest said. He chuckled under his breath. Tolliver's looked at me about six times and has no idea I'm here. He looks like he's getting ready to piss himself. The older man's tone wasn't mocking. He seemed generally worried about Tolliver's mental state, though not because of the man himself. Something moved in the trees on the other side of the dirt field, and Elam watched as the lanky Castellanos strode into view. The Castellanos down there, he said in a low voice, his finger rising toward the trigger. He had trained his sight on the Castellanos' chest. It would be nothing, he realized, to squeeze the trigger on him or anybody else down there. He was like God sitting on a cloud, deciding whose day this was to die. And there was something intoxicating to that, the power and the distance. The men were talking, but he couldn't hear them. The Castiano grinned and then, Impossible. Elam thought. He looked directly into Elam's eye for one hot, heart-stopping second. The moment passed and Elam swung his sights over the man with the gun. He was standing beside another man who rode and spoke with the posture of an authority figure. Elam was there again for a second, watching the pretty girl bleed to death on the ground, Jackie standing in a pool of blood and that pistol smoking up beside his hip, A soft smile and empty gun outside a cafe window. Blood. The sense of being carried in the screams of the mob and the snap of rope. The beating, the hanging. A gun, hot and empty. Click. They see the Castellano, Elam said. His heart was a pump, a miracle of science electrical signals no different from those that ran a telegraph worked his ventricles and sent oxygenated blood up and down his body gathered it again after its loads were delivered and then dragged it all back up through the lungs made it rich and red again a miracle click a gun cost as much as a horse but what good was a horse when you had nowhere to ride what a dream that was elam swallowed what are they doing The priest asked. They, one of them is getting ready to shoot him. Elam said. His mind, his mind was a miracle. Ignore all the blood and electric and the marvels of synaptic nodes transcribing the churning chaos of life into memory. His mind was a miracle for him. The other boys had no future. The adults often said that to them, Miss Pruitt and the priests and teachers, No futures, just like their people. Secret savages, even when taught better. If you don't work the tannery, you could maybe be a janitor in some bar. Never a school, though. Never a hospital. His mind was a miracle. He understood the numbers. Their connections were infinite, just as his mind was infinite. Small, interlocking bits of data which could be attacked, 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 until their secrets were revealed. Puzzles every day, solutions to follow. He was better than dreams of riding out east and finding whatever it was he'd lost. He didn't need that. He was better than them. His mind was a miracle. The pistol was fat and shiny and empty. Hot and empty. Smoking. Elam shuddered, shook involuntarily from adrenaline. Just like in the cafe, he was silent, waiting for a cue to move, to act. Click can't tell you what to do,' the priest said. Elam lay the sights over the man's face and watched him, the small movements of his eyes as he took in the Castellanos' grotesque display of a severed head. The man's arm adjusted itself before the shot, figuring little things like recoil compensation, weight, and side alignment on instinct. All of these equations—ballistics, structural analysis, anatomy, biology— Factored and parsed and simplified in a second. The man's mind was a miracle. Click. Elam squeezed the trigger, thinking about two boys yelling at each other over futures they would never share as brothers. Click. Elam squeezed the trigger, thinking of the head custodian a worn, sullen man with a heavy mustache and cold eyes. He'd had to practice shaking the man's hand over and over again before going to meet the dean of the college board. Indians didn't know how to shake a man's hand, but he'd learn, goddammit. Firm, steady pressure, Miss Pruitt said. Just a few easy pumps. Click. Elam watched Jackson hopping shirtless around their shared room, cupping his mouth and mimicking the Apache war cries they'd heard at the traveling show. It had been a white man caked up in red clay face paint and a few white lines beneath his eyes making them, but that hadn't mattered. The cries were so powerful and startling they'd scared women in the audience, making them stand and fan themselves and leave. Their escorts had followed quickly behind, chuckling and whooping back at the white man dancing in circles around a fake fire made from a single piece of painted wood. Click. Elam squeezed the trigger for what felt like a lifetime. A lifetime. (laughs)
2: Children, children, gather round and place your hand in the air. That's right. Fingers split wide, 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 so the wind can pass between them. Carry that sweet scent of trade on to the nose of the witcher. We are gathered here today in non-existence, awaiting the strike of the pen, the clatter of the keyboard. The moment when I might be introduced to the ears of the masses so that our work can spring forth anew in the hearts of millions. That we are carried on the wings of angels. Say true, our words must be electrified. Amen. Our words must be clarified. Amen. Our words must be carried wide. Amen. So go out there, little brothers, little sisters, and spread the gospel on social media. Put us on Reddit. Put us on the Facebook. And put us on the Twitter. Praise her. Share us far and wide so that I might become, and my story made clear, at WS Fairy Tales on Twitter. West Side Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. The link tree is in the description. Praise her name. Praise her. Mm. Praise her, yes. And let us together drive this sin from gun, cotton, Raise your hands now. Raise your hands.
3: Now back to our story, already in progress. Sharp and winding ridges of shadow veiled the interior of the dining car. Morphous silhouettes slit and slivered by what moonlight shone through the armored windows. Sue's worn bag of simple possessions lay tucked up where she could slide out, grab it, and run if the situation got too bad. The boy, Ducky, didn't seem to have brought much of anything with him. She'd told him to gather up what he had, and he'd just huffed off to the sleeping compartment. Then he'd come back with the same just as he'd left and given her a nod as though he were carrying a whole damn house on his back. Thankful-like. Oh well. This is the security team's car, a voice said outside. Metal scratched and creaked as he crawled up on the side of the car to peek inside. The consensus, really just a plan laid out whole cloth by the scarred-up priest, was that fighting from the armored rear carriage was a good idea only if the train stayed in motion. There wasn't anything worth spitting that box other than them, and a smart team would just cut the car loose or drop a lit stick of dynamite inside it. To avoid unnecessary fighting, they only needed to take the engine, after all. De Castiano had volunteered himself to guard the front of the train as though there were some extra profit in it. Given the way he talked, Sue figured the fight enough was probably what he was out for. All the rest of this was just gravy. Boots touched steel a few yards away from her, the tight, soft click of well made, well worn heels. The man had a way of moving soft on his midfoot. Light touches on the flat, hard surface of the compartment floor, followed by the little swish and scrape of him shifting his heel to gently tap it into place on the ground. Sue could see him in her mind's eye, pistol out and scanning the car slice by slice, eating up the pie, as it were. She didn't like that level of professionalism on the other end of a gun that'd be pointed at her, Every move the man made had a degree of thought behind it. Decades of practice. The man had lived a long goddamn time getting real comfortable in moments like these. Didn't mean he was perfect, but she found herself holding her breath between his irregular footfalls, worried the stifled intimacy of the compartment would give her away. There was a great deal of noise around them. Men shouting orders outside now and the constant din of the train. But the security car was thick-walled and heavy with tables and benches and other things to break up the sound. It was quiet enough she could hear the man sniffing back a runny nose and the subtle rasp of cloth when he wiped his face on his sleeve. Spring allergies. Or maybe just riding out here to the high country in a day. Sue thought to herself... She couldn't imagine what the fuck anybody on Earth might want with the stacks of old wood on this train. Though she'd seen men kill and steal over the littlest damn things time and time again. Sometimes nothing. It made her think of a little rotten doll waiting beyond the light of a campfire. A man with glassy eyes, his thing out and still in his hand, leaking piss onto his leg in the ground. Cool little penknife. Blue moon steel and bloody lace. Bloody cotton. These men are dressed to gray. A long dead voice said in the back of her mind. I can see that. She thought back at it. Her grimace a slash of white left unseen in the dark. Her thumb and forefinger slid up the gunstock in her hand to pinch the little safety tab. The rifle lay heavy and long down her chest over her thigh. Its stock smelled like oil and somebody else's sweat. A few somebodies, maybe. The man's shadow shifted as he walked deeper into the car. Moon haze caught in the loose fuzz of the man's woolen overcoat as he approached where Ducky had secluded himself, near the forward door. It wasn't a great spot to be, particularly if the man's friends decided on a less direct approach, but it afforded the kid an opportunity to run for it and that's all he really wanted from his hide. For her part, Sue just hoped he wouldn't rab it before he emptied his rifle. The cumbersome thing had five shots, and these midnight hoods were probably carrying Sixers. They'd fire as they pleased when it came down to it. A half-cylinder or more for every two rounds she could cycle through the rifle. The man did his little mid-foot shift, and Sue rolled the safety to fire thumb hard against the toggle so it wouldn't snap into place. The man froze. She could see his left or right shin now. It was hard to tell in the darkness. The shape of his pants were fuzzy patches of gray against the deeper darkness beneath the benches opposite her. For the first time since getting in the car, he shifted uncomfortably onto his heels and then tapped his foot. All right, then. Come on out, you he said. The slender shadow of his pistol barrel swung like a pendulum across the aisle. She could feel the grit crackling between his heel and the wood and steel floorboards. Her heart beat so hard she almost couldn't hear him start speaking. We know your names, and we know who you are, the man said. Sue stared at the dangling tip of that pistol. When he started talking again, She used his voice to cover the sound of her adjusting her feet. On a personal, professional level, that is. Blackwell's organization means nothing to us. You mean nothing to us. Come out now and we'll let you walk off this indignity. But if you fight or you run unaccounted for, we will call on you in the future. Sue heard another man shouting similar nonsense outside along with the snuffling and stomping of horses. That noise had always been there, though her mind had all but washed it out. Now that this fellow was interested in it, however, her mind had followed suit. He shifted on his toe the way he'd been doing all along, and he kept talking. "'There you have it,' he continued. "'Mr. Clinton is out there, organizing a surrender of your entire operation as we speak.' And there's Tolliver Loeb. The king's been taken, people. Now creep out with your hands up and we'll... The dangling barrel of the pistol shifted and Sue kicked off the wall of the train car, sliding herself all of two feet out from beneath the table and into the aisle in front of the man. Her rifle glided out with her and rose into the moonlight. The man towered over her, a lightless silhouette barely seeming to register the small woman on the floor beneath it nothing in the shape of him suggested where the pistol would be it didn't matter in the deepest pocket of her mind sue wondered if she'd actually chambered a round into the thing before setting all this up she heard somebody fire a gun that wasn't her own and half expected to feel the rip and burn of a bullet in her chest light from the other gunshot wreathed the man's head in a soft corona she pulled her trigger and lit his face in smoke and flame He looked down at her like a man in a newspaper cartoon, eyes bulging. His face twisted in a comical expression of disgust and confusion, and he parted his lips like he didn't quite know what to say. She hadn't been able to see his pistol anymore because he'd raised it to point up at the ceiling beside his ear. The room went dark and he pulled the trigger, punching a second hole in the roof. The man slumped to the floor and Sue rolled back under the table as the two behind him started shooting She shouted, too, screaming for Ducky to fire, goddammit, even when the nasty little pistol rounds were blowing out chunks of wood a few inches from her head. She racked the action on the rifle and fired into the man she'd shot already, hoping to God she could get him before he fired a second round off. The rifle burst showered his face in sparks and blinded Sue. I got him! Ducky screamed. The man at the other end of the car disagreed with this assessment and emptied his cylinder into the seats above Sue. The hell you did! Sue screamed. She held her rifle out into the aisle, not really aiming, and fired it in the man's direction. God only knew if she'd actually hit the bastard. Sue felt the car shake underneath her and saw legs flash by. Then came a series of rifle shots, one after the other, until there was silence. Inside the car, at least. Outside, they were reenacting Gettysburg. Ducky! Are you okay? Sue yelled. She opened her bolt and pushed some spare rounds into the internal magazine before sliding it home. Lord, I killed two men, he said. She heard him stomping back to her. What the hell do we do now? He helped drag her out from under the table and then fell over top her when the remaining windows in the car began exploding. Both of them cursed and scrambled back into their hiding spots. A person started screaming outside in such a way Sue felt anything but curious. Our job was to sit right here and protect this car, right? She screamed. She couldn't see him nodding, but figured he was. The wadding she'd stuffed in her ears itched, and she pulled it out, readjusted it, and stuck it back in before reaching over to the man she'd shot. If he wasn't dead, he was close enough she didn't have to worry that she wasn't gentle. Her hands slapped around his body, ignoring the tackiness of fresh blood in search of pockets. Then she found what she was looking for and rocked back to the position she'd been in. Then I say we sit right here, wait to see if we won, yeah? She asked Ducky, lighting two of the dead man's cigarettes and handing the other across the aisle. She couldn't see the young man's face, but his fingers found the smoke all the same.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times.
0: all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more.
3: All right, all right, I'll read right, God it, Goddamn Are you a fan of the West Side Fairy Tales podcast and my, my, my story, Sin Carriers? Then take a second right now, pause this episode and take a second to like it, comment on it, or share it on your favorite social media sites. This year, we're trying to grow the Westside Fairy Tales like never before, and we need your help to do it. So if you have just a second, use Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the hell, and share the Westside Fairy Tales with the world. And if you want, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and what have you. Just search Westside Fairy Tales or use the link in the episode show notes. All right, that's it. Now get you. Now, back to our program, already in progress. Vasily leaned against the door with his hand on the knob, nibbling at his lip and trying not to let the young woman see just how much he was shaking. If he hadn't been rattling the brass handle so hard it was ringing, the effort might have been more effective, but here he was. "'Half a man, as ever,' his father said in his mind. He rolled his eyes, looking to the door to keep the expression to himself, and then rested his forehead against the wood. A firefight had erupted outside the train. The unrest in his own country had made him witness to such matters on a number of occasions, the least of which was the night of his final departure from St. Petersburg. The city had caught fire in a hundred places after Tsar Nicholas had proved himself once and for all to be the greatest of the nation's idiots, a true king amongst kings. Violence to his person didn't concern Vasily half as much, however, as young Moira's current condition. Her episode had passed, it seemed, and left her thoroughly exhausted. he escorted her to her room and helped her change out of the ornate dress and into some fresh, breathable working women's attire she kept on hand. Miss Moira retained enough energy for that effort alone, it seemed, and had accompanied him to his quarters for tea and recuperation. It seemed she was merely more tolerant of her father than most, but still desired to avoid him when she was trying to rest. He couldn't blame her. Moira had fallen asleep with a saucer of tea on her lap in the compartment's lone chair, and Vasily rescued the cup before it spilled and dropped a blanket over her. He would have been content to allow her the seat all night if she required, particularly given she needed a degree of observation while recuperating from the episode she'd suffered. Vasily was no doctor, he'd be the first to admit, but he'd worked alongside the medical profession enough to know episodes such as Miss Moira had suffered sometimes came in pairs or even triplets. Sometimes the following sessions could be far, far worse than the originals. The young woman slept peacefully, though, "'if not a touch too still for his liking. "'He knelt beside her a few times "'and touched his finger to the base of her nose, "'her throat, and her wrist "'to monitor her pulse and breathing. "'A casual observer might have thought him "'a touch over-present with the girl. "'She was beautiful and young and vulnerable, "'and he was a scruffy, sour-looking older man. "'But Vasily's own father would be the first to remark "'on how little any woman would have to fear "'from his son's attentions.' Vasily pressed his ear to the door and listened to the screaming and shooting outside. This was the only real threat to the girl he needed to worry about at the moment. Men were screaming and jumping onto the train, stomping around the cars outside. More were still firing from the train and into it, though the gunshots alone couldn't tell him who was who. Some of the firing sounded like the Mosin's rifles he was most familiar with, if only in the speed and report. It's hungry, Moira said behind him. Vasily yelped and fell against the door. The woman had crept within inches of him, her eyes wide and bloodshot. I need to go. What are you talking about? Vasily hissed, trying to push himself back to standing. He tangled up his legs and slid halfway down the door. Miss Moira's hand snapped at the door latch and the confounded thing dumped him into the hallway. "'Miss Moira stepped over him. "'Wait!' he said, repeating himself as she stumbled in the direction of the shooting. "'Her feet were unsteady, seemed, in fact, as though she weren't entirely in control of them. "'She moved like a woman being pushed by an invisible hand. "'Wait, goddammit!' Vasily gathered himself and stormed after her, "'trying to grab her shoulder and failing outright.' Then they were on one of the flatbed cars with the unsettling piles of wood. They were like pits of blackness in the moonlight, which itself was cool and white and delicate against the natural darkness around the train. Moira slipped his grasp again and rounded the corner of the woodpile on the side where the people were firing. A stray bullet clapped into the boards closest to Vasily's face and he dropped to his knees, scrambling back into cover. He cursed watching Miss Moira's frail shadow disappear in the direction of the firefight. Vasily took a breath and rounded the pile in the opposite direction, reasoning he'd accomplished nothing being shot the process of helping the girl. He made it to the connector to the next flatbed and smacked his arm against the railing with a curse, making it ring. She was already gone. After a quick glance behind him to ensure she hadn't doubled back, he continued past the next two wood piles. He thought he'd lost her entirely, but caught a glimpse of her hair through the glass windows of the closed-sided brake bulk container. This was the sort you could walk inside, meant to carry random bits of cargo to be dropped individually along the way. His own things were in this compartment, and he hurriedly searched out a specific item before continuing his pursuit. "'What's going on out there?' a small voice asked from behind a crate marked Blackwell. Vasily spun and almost backhanded the portly young man he found hiding there. The boy was likely in his mid-twenties or older, eyes wide in the dark. Vasily pointed at him and then at the crate. Stay hidden, Vasily said. And don't ask the next person you might see what's going on. There's bandits attacking the train. The young man nodded and shuffled back behind the crate. Vasily continued through the back door feeling only a touch more confident now that he had something with which to defend himself. It rested tightly inside his sleeve, though hopefully not too tightly to be used. He found Miss Moira around the corner of the next woodpile. Her eyes were wide and once again sane, though thoroughly terrified. A man in a gray bowler hat had twisted her fine blonde hair up in a fist and jammed a gun into her ribs. Mr. Tavarish? She whimpered grateful to see him despite the circumstances. The man cracked her beneath the eye with his revolver, splitting her cheek and covering her face with a torrent of blood. Vasily raised his hands and shouted, and the man leveled the pistol at him. Please let her go, Vasily said. And the man shot him. Life was a collection of measured moments, by Clinton's assessment. Some you saw once, and others a million times. The caliber of a man was in what he learned from each moment, what he left with, if he lived. In Idaho Springs, for instance, he'd learned you didn't have to play out your whole hand to win. They'd let the state send in its own killers then, and got paid all the same. In Pinhook draw. He'd learned the opposite lesson. A good hand doesn't mean you just get to win. It was clear this rabble knew they were coming and had planned for it to some degree. God only knows how much warning they had. More evident was the fact that his information was not accurate in terms of ability. These people weren't just opportunistic, desperate criminals. They were trained, organized... Clinton looked over to see how bad the man beside him was hurt, just in time to see the man's blown-apart skull splatter over the dirt. Well, then. Kill them all! Clinton screamed, kicking his horse up to block the tall Mexican's line of sight and then drawing his pistol. The man had the drop on him, but that display with the head meant he had at least one full hand. If the Mexican got a shot off, he'd hit the horse first. More gunshots erupted behind Clinton. A firestorm that lit up the inside of the security car where all these yokels were supposed to be. Hopefully, his men had gotten whomever was left in there, though he doubted any of the number had stayed behind. Best case scenario would be them hearing his speech about rewards and wanted murderers and either turning on each other or outright running for it. His man amongst Tolliver's drivers had said the security people were a bunch of freaks and degenerates, and those types rarely put up a good fight. Clinton's horse dropped down on all fours and he flicked his gun to where the Mexican should be, leaning to the side in his saddle so he wouldn't be an obvious target. The Mexican was gone, however, just a cloud of dust settling over the ground. Shit, Clinton said, rocking over his horse and hunting for a target. The lanky piece of shit had used Clinton's same trick against him and flanked left. His pistol sights found the man just as a great ball of shadow obscured his eyes. He felt hot liquid hit his face, and then a stunning impact as something heavy spread his nose sideways flat against his cheekbone. Clinton got three rounds off anyway, firing where the man should be and hoping for a scream or shout. He caught his horse's reins as the creature sidestepped to counterbalance Clinton's struggle to not fall off the thing. Just as he managed to right himself, he saw the far side of the dusty square opposite Tolliver Loeb, who was still standing there like the absolute rube he was. Near half of his men were over there, rounding up the Chinese dig boys spread out through the camp. Now they couldn't fire toward the train because he was here, and they were busy fending off shots from the building to his right. Clinton got his gun up and pointed at the Mexican, but the man was gone again. Sharp, suffocating pain in his side told him where he had gone. Clinton looked down and saw the lanky bastard grinning at him from beneath his horse. That, and the dull glimmer of a hiltless, handmade knife jutting out of his stomach. He tried to shoot the motherfucker one more time, but the guy had already produced another knife from somewhere beneath his poncho and buried it through the front of Clinton's shoulder joint. He could actually feel the knife popping his arm out of its socket as the man dragged him to the ground. Then the Mexican was kneeling over top him, pulling the knife out of his stomach and wiping it clean on Clinton's suit jacket. The tall man clucked his tongue at the career mercenary and shook his head. With his hat gone, the man's hair was a long, wet, stringy mess that clung to his face and neck. He lay his palm on Clinton's horse's thigh. "'He is so beautiful, your horse,' the man said. "'And you hide behind him. "'During the fight, you started. "'Disgraceful.' "'The Mexican adjusted his feet and leaned closer to Clinton's face. "'If Clinton could have just bit the bastard, he would have. "'The lanky man touched the hilt of the knife buried in Clinton's shoulder joint, "'teasing it in circles.' Clinton gritted his teeth but didn't scream, which made the man nod in approval. "'You can keep that one,' he said of the knife. "'If you find someone man enough to bring it back, you give it to him for me, okay?' "'Fuck you,' Clinton said as the man stood and slapped his horse's backside. The animal bolted, dragging Clinton up the rail line and into the night." Jesus Christ, Tolliver said, watching the firefight erupt before him. At first, he thought his security team had abandoned him. Now it seemed they were fucking everywhere, shooting everything all at once. Mr. Tie Buckle Shoe or whatever he'd called himself was a whole lot of paste being trampled by the other fellow's horse. The Mexican bounded and weaved around the living man, tossing a whole severed head into the man's face and then rolling under his horse and stabbing him. "'Jesus Christ!' Tolliver said, snatching his hat off his head and stumbling as the must dragged him back into the buildings. He could see the shooters who'd hit the first man now, their position a collection of rhythmic flashes as they fired into the scattered Pinkertons. He tried to bat the man's hand away, but the must wasn't to be denied. He flung open the office doors and threw Tolliver, who rolled across the floor like a bowling ball. "'Jesus Christ!' Tolliver screamed, backing away hand over hand as the must turned to find one of the Pinkertons pointing a gun at his face. The must must have tried to say something, but the man pulled the trigger without listening, blowing apart the must's head. The Pinkerton leveled his pistol at Tolliver next, but the must's hand grabbed his wrist before he could pull the trigger. The Pinkerton turned to see the must's head reform from a clod of dust motes hanging in the air. "'Jesus Christ!' Oliver shouted as the must wrapped his hand around the back of the Pinkerton's neck, seemingly bringing the man in for a kiss. The Pinkerton struggled as best he could, emptying a cylinder from his revolver into the must's stomach and then trying to beat him away with his fists. The must pressed his lips to the Pinkerton's, and the man screamed and clawed like an animal. The must's torso bulged, kicking out his waistcoats, and then shrank. Jesus Christ! Tolliver whispered, as the Pinkerton's eyes and ears blew out in a dusty spray that coated the walls and floor with bits of purplish jelly and blood. The must pushed the Pinkerton's body away, and the eyeless, toothless husk stumbled, looked at Tolliver, and then walked unsteadily out the front doors. Tolliver opened his mouth to say something, he didn't know what, and the must reared back and kicked him in the stomach, not hard enough to seriously hurt him but enough to knock the wind out of him.
2: I I swear, if you say... uh, Jesus Christ, one more time, I will melt you like a candle, Tolliver.
3: The must said, pointing down at Tolliver and then sighing and sitting down behind his desk. He flicked open a gold cigarette holder, lit a cigarette, and tried to smoke it. His eyes wandered over the ceiling as he flicked the smoke back and forth over his lips. Then he seemed to grow sick of the smoke and stamped it out on the surface of the desk, several inches away from the ashtray. Fuck this. The must muttered to himself. Fuck Blackwell. He stood and slapped the smoldering embers, sending them coursing through the air. He pointed at Tulliver. "'taking a deep breath. "'And fuck you, Tolliver. "'You little worm. "'The load's mine.' "'Mr. Dunbarton,' Tolliver said, raising his palms. "'The must glared at him. "'Please don't.' "'The must took a breath and opened his mouth, "'cracking it open past the hinge of his jawbone. "'Dust flew from his throat.' spreading through the room and out the door. Tolliver covered his nose and mouth and ran outside, Nod looking back as the must's body discorporated, and fell into a pile of powder that covered his rapidly disintegrating shoes. Mr. Loeb! Vought shouted from beneath the boardwalk as Tolliver ran outside. Not stopping, he buttonhooked and frantically waved for Vought to follow him. The little man had broken free of his captor at some point. His blood-soaked shirt was clue enough as to how. Vaught gritted his teeth, looked at the yard, and then hobbled from his spot beneath the boardwalk as fast as he could. Tolliver saw the golden dust eating through the windows and doors of the must's office. Shit! he hissed under his breath. Then he button mid-sprint again back to Vaught, picked the little man up, and ran for the train. The face of God hung slack in death, floating through the heavens on an tide of endless night. Stars blinked and died, their light mixed with the burning scraps of flesh falling from his death-bloated face. Milky eyes smoked in the radiation of a cold white sun. Cords of brittle hair burned in a wavering red corona. Moira stood before a grand ship, Ancient, blackened wood bent and peeled from the frame and fell to the barren red earth around it. Bodies hung slack in the fetid doldrums of this place, dangling from the rigging and strapped ankle to face to ankle along the length of the hull. Something black and liquid slipped from a crack in the ship and climbed the bodies, vanishing over the bulwark and leaving a scrim of grease on the ship's brass nameplate. HMS Golden Fist the plate read. Shadows of seabirds circled endlessly over the bodies and broken wood, over the bowl of craggy red-brown rock in which all this mess sat. Beyond the bowl lay a great plain where a thousand churches lay in ruins. Black centipedes crept shadow to shadow. Faint screams echoed on the wind. The closest bulkhead bent, blistered, and peeled open to show Moira the inside of the ship. What she could see was red and dripping and senseless. Something beyond even the horrors of this place. In its depths, a golden light shone. Teeth clattered. The world shook, shifted. Tried to get under her feet. Tried to get her closer.
2: It's hungry,
3: Moira said to herself, louder than intended the roar of the planet stilled as a million ears turned in her direction. Billions of eyes and feelers and tiny scratching hairs tasting and testing the air for this new freshness. They should take you seriously, a voice said in her head. She had turned from the ship, even though she was still facing it. Arms grabbed her, pulled her, and she shook them off. Nothing touched her at all. She was alone. 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 Imagine
2: if they took you seriously. If they relied on you, how much better their lives would be. Ask him. Ask him. Ask him. Ask him.
3: Things whispered in the space around her. A centipede as thick as her pinky finger crept onto her foot and bit the flesh over her big toe. Ask him what he thinks of you, little girl the voice said. The ship shuddered. Boards warped and rubbed against each other, making a sound like moaning. Its body flexed and the red and dripping hole opened wider. Wider. I need to go, Moira said. She tried to run. She did run, though she was still staring at that hole. Her toe ached, mouths watered in that faraway place. The face of God bore down on her and said nothing, did nothing, because it was dead. Dead and rotting in a hell of its own making. That's enough. Enough, I said. A man screamed at Moira. She stumbled away from him and he reached out and grabbed her hair, dragging her close. He was a rough-looking sort, despite his fine clothes. Heavy aftershave mingled with the smell of sweat and the thicker almost choking stench of fear and violence. His eyes were wild. I'm so sorry, Moira whispered. He'd buried the barrel of a pistol in her neck so hard she thought the pressure of it alone would kill her. The man was breathing heavily. He looked to the man beside him, just at the back of one of the wood piles. The other man seemed distracted by something. He'd taken his hat off and was swaying slightly in the cool night air. Shut your fucking mouth, cunt. The man said. He got his face within an inch of hers. She closed her eyes and looked away. Look at me. Look at me. The barrel shifted into her throat, closing her windpipe and making her cough, forcing her to obey him. Acquiesce. Plead. Know your place. The voice said. She shivered or... Rather, her body started to convulse against her will. The indignity was so intense it felt alien. She wanted to disappear, to go back to Mr. Tavarish's nice little compartment with its tea and its odd, mechanical smells. Little Little child, little little girl. girl, 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 girl. The voice whispered. It was enjoying itself. Little lady, little baby. Kurt, let's go. The man said. He was grinning at Moira. Grinning into her, it felt like. This little bitch is Loeb's girl. He squeezed his fist, pulling the hair along her scalp in a way that made her face burn. You thought you were going to sneak out dressed like some laborer? Smart. But we're taking the string. and you along with it? He leaned in so his lips were almost brushing her ear. I'm going to fuck you up good, bitch. He turned back to his friend, who was now slightly out of sight. Standing, in fact, like he had his nose touching the woodpile. "'What in the fuck, Kurt?' he said. Footsteps rounded the corner and the man spun back around, jamming the pistol back into Moira's throat. throat. She could have died when Mr. Tavarish rounded the corner, face sweating and his normally kind eyes narrow and dark. "'Mr. Tavarish!' She tried to scream, hoping he would turn around and run. That he would, at least, notice the man with the gun and run for it. The moment was so intense she barely felt the man holding her bash her cheek with the butt of his pistol. Mr. Tavares raised his hands and took a step in their direction. Please, let her go, he said, and the man shot him, three times, all in the chest. Moira screamed and tried to break away to to run to Mr. Tavarish. She knew this was her fault. He'd been coming to help her because she'd been behaving erratically. The man wrenched her back by her hair and then slammed his gun into her stomach several times until she could barely breathe. Then he swung her into the railing by her hair, hitting her on the temple harder than she'd ever been hit in her life. Shut the fuck up, the man said. Say, yes, sir. Yes, sir, Moira whispered. She could barely see, barely breathe. That's why she thought she was hallucinating when Mr. Tavares popped up off the deck like a terrier and grabbed the man's wrist. She screamed when something popped in her ear and then she couldn't hear at all, just a numb sort of rushing noise. She fell against the railing and watched as Mr. Tavares dragged the man to the ground, disarmed him, and then shot him in the back of the head with his own pistol. Then he tossed the gun off the side of the train and sank to his knees. Mr. Tavorish, she yelled. He knelt with his face to the ground, and as her hearing began to return, Moira could hear him muttering to himself in Russian. Even without knowing the language, she could tell he was cursing. A few seconds later, he favored her with a pained smile, and they helped each other to their feet. How are you? Are you hurt? he asked, touching the cut on her cheek and grimacing. Moira felt tears pouring over her cheeks and she threw her arms around the great, shaggy mess of a man. He yelped and pushed her away, hands going to his injured chest. Moira put her hands over her mouth and looked at the holes in his vest and jacket. They were clean, if ragged, not a speck of blood to be seen. He noticed her concern and waved a hand. I am fine, he said. She grabbed his arm this time giving him a wide-eyed look. You were shot, sir, she said, slowly. He favored her with a smile and squeezed her hand. I am fine, Miss Moira, he repeated. He pushed her hands off him and then rested a palm on her shoulder, patting it twice and then walking past her. We have to make sure there's no others around here before we pat ourselves on the back. He turned to look at her. Could I ask you to wait in the car there, with the young man hiding behind the typewriters? She nodded, and Mr. Tavarish spun as somebody else burst through the door behind him. His hand whipped up into the man's face. The man shouted, stumbled, and dropped a rifle on the deck. Sweet Jesus, he said, pointing at Mr. Tavarish. It wasn't a man, really, Miss Morton noticed, but rather a teenage boy perhaps a few years younger than her. A black boy, at that. Mr. Tavarish kept his hand trained on the boy and retrieved the rifle. Hey, now, I'm with y'all. I'm sorry for running up here like that. Hey, you, a voice called from the next car down. A rifle barrel slid into view. Moira realized quite suddenly that these people were coming from the horse trailer, and she was filled with an almost paralyzing need to check on her horse's People had been shooting at this train, at her horses. Despite the tension in the air, she found herself listening for any sounds of distress from the car. They're not yours,
2: they're his,
3: the voice said. You're his too.
2: Even the taste of you belongs to him.
3: Moira felt a tongue trace its way up her arm and she slapped at her skin. Fuck you got up that sleeve, old man. A woman's voice called from inside the horse cart. "'Don't you be pointing that at my ducky. "'Boy's foolish, but I've grown attached to him.' "'You are the ducky?' Mr. Tavares said. "'What are you doing on this train?' "'Security, sir. "'For Mr. Blackwell,' Ducky said, "'pointing to a body laying just in front of his sprawled legs. "'Did you do that to him with that little ass gun?' Mr. Tavares shook his head and looked to the woman standing just out of sight. "'I am going to raise my hands,' he said. "'Please don't shoot me. I am a passenger and these men attacked my friend, whose father is running this train. Yeah, all right,' the woman said. She kept the rifle trained on Mr. Tavares and directed him back toward Moira. Moira found she could barely breathe. She felt lightheaded, in fact— when the woman was in sight, she pointed at Moira's face with the gun in a less-than-threatening way. This won't do that to you? She asked. Her tone was severe. Moira shook her head. Mr. Tavares saved me, Moira said, realizing she had her hands up as well. She kept them that way, but pointed down at the corpse behind her. He hit me. The woman narrowed her eyes at them and then sucked her teeth and let the rifle point at the ground. Shit, I remember you, she said. Boss's daughter, huh? And I think I saw you at the last stop, right? Mr. Tavardish nodded. You mind giving Ducky there his rifle back? We heard a lady screaming, decided to be a hero. She's hurt, he protested, pointing at Moira with his palm up. So she is, the woman said. She tapped herself on the sternum. I'm Sue. That's Ducky, your, who, Mr. Tavarish and Moira Loeb, Moira said, reaching out a hand on instinct. Sue favored her with a rakish smile and tipped her hat. Well met, Moira Loeb, she said. I hope you stay so pretty once they get uh, done stitching that cheek. Moira flushed and stepped back. Mr. Tavarish is an excellent hand at surgery, she said, wringing her hands. I'm sure he'll do a fine job. Mr. Tavarish wriggled his mustache and said nothing. Sue laughed. The gunfire behind them seemed to have died out almost completely. What happened to him? She asked, pointing to the corpse between the woodpile and the horse trailer. Moira blinked. He was... The man who hurt me called him Kurt, she said. He was fine a-, a moment ago, though. She trailed off, and Mr. Tavarish gave her an appraising look while handing Ducky back his rifle. The young man nodded and walked away to check the other side of the woodpile. He was so earnest and intense, Moira couldn't help but chuckle. Hey, uh, you come see this, Ducky said. Sue and Tavares joined him quickly, and Moira took her time stepping around the mysterious corpse with Mr. Kurt. The cause of death was readily apparent. His head and neck were completely missing down to the shoulders. The National Razor couldn't have done so fine a job. Fuck me sideways, Sue said with an air of awe to her words. Moira stepped up behind them, just a touch too short to see what they were looking at. I will live a thousand fucking years and never see such a thing again. God is my witness. This is the rarest night of my life. Moira blushed fully scarlet when she saw what they were looking at. Her father, red-faced, was sprinting to beat the devil with tiny Mr. Vaught riding his shoulders like a miniature Fred Archer. And despite everything, she laughed. They all did. there, folks. If you're like me, do you love a scary story? But why settle for Bargain Bin Big Box Store Blandness when you can get piping hot homemade horror delivered directly to your home? Support the West Side Fairy Tales today on Patreon, and you can get episodes like this one ad-free, as well as access to merch, e-books, and other amazing deals. But most importantly, you'll help bring weird, original content like Sin Carriers to life. If you want more bizarre, creepy, and horrifying indie fiction, then go to patreon.com slash Tales. That's patreon.com slash Westside fairy today. Now, back to our program already in progress. Mildover opened the bolt on his rifle and pressed in two more rounds, trying to close his mouth as fully as he did the slide. Both he and Elam's jaws had dropped in the preceding seconds. Am I seeing things? Do you see that? Elam asked. The boy had proved himself well, keeping calm and watching and listening attentively. He'd already kept a bullet out of Mildover's right ear spotting one of the gray-dressed Pinkertons taking aim from behind a barrel. Mildover had sent the man to judgment that same second and the boy had gone right back to spotting. He had a good eye, but nobody on earth could miss what they were both seeing right now. "'I see, and yet I do not believe,' Mildover said." watching Tolliver Loeb sprint at a mad dash across the dirt field beneath them. In his arms was their work boss, the little person, Mr. Vaught. Even as they watched, Mr. Vaught was clearly protesting a great deal about the carry arrangements, and through a series of clumsy acrobatics made it somehow onto Tolliver's shoulders. Hilarity aside, it only took Mildover a second to realize where they were going and what they were running from. A noxious yellow gas was spreading from the mine's main office. "'They're going to start the train,' Mildover said, pulling Elam back down behind the crown of the roof. "'It's going to get moving fast, too. There's almost nothing on the thing.' He kept himself from cursing and rolled onto his back to get a look down the slope of the roof. A few seconds later, the train was howling and screeching as somebody pressed it to max speed. "'Are they... are they going to fucking leave us?' Elam asked. Mildover kept himself from correcting the boy's speech. It wasn't his place. Yes, he said, but all we have to do is catch up. What in the fuck? After everything we just did up here? Yes, Mildover repeated, but all we have to do is catch up. Follow me. He slid down the long roof with his rifle in his lap trying not to hold his breath as he waited for somebody to take a pot shot at him. Dropping off the edge of the high roof nearly landed him with a broken ankle. He could feel his old bones protesting. The boy landed behind him, silent as a bird. Ahead, the Pinkerton's horses were still staked to the ground. You know how to ride a horse? Mildover asked. When the hell would I have ridden a horse? Elam hissed. I am a goddamned accountant. Okay, okay. Mildover said, I'll help you up and guide you. Just stay calm. I'm as calm as a fucking frog pond, priest. Elam said. The shooting might have actually gotten to him worse than Mildover had expected. He seemed surly. They got on the horses and rode at a trot. Elam's horse's reins in Mildover's hand. He handed them to Elam when they were at the end of the building by the tracks. Just shoulder your rifle and hold on to the reins, Buildover said. We're sprinting once we hit open dirt. It's the only thing that might keep us from getting shot. I think we got them all, Elam said. At least, I don't hear any more shooting. He cocked an ear up to the sky. Although, the boy adjusted and fired his rifle into the dark scaring the horses and Mildover as well. He considered reprimanding the boy, but he'd seen something in the flash of the gunshot he didn't like. What was that? Mildover asked. I don't know, Elam said. But it's getting up. Ride. Mildover shouted. Ride! Ride! Carriers, Bruised, battered and beaten but otherwise alive, our travelers make a break east heading for their next stop. Elam and Mildover travel the rough country on horseback, endeavoring to catch up with the train as soon as possible. In the desert, the last surviving member of the doomed Pinkerton raiding party reminisces on the life he lived. Back at the Must's compound, the rider happens upon the aftermath of the failed ambush and considers an alliance. All the while, the folks on the train find their minds wandering to strange visions of a red sky, rolling waves, and the siren song whispering through the gaps in the wood. Will this ambush bring our travelers together, or will the revelations of their past drive them apart? Has this upset against the Pinkertons ended their pursuit of the train and its cargo, or merely delayed the inevitable? And who amongst the crew will be the first to give in to their desires and go in amongst the woods? You may find the answers to these questions and more in episode six of Sin Carriers, Tension. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell in Louisville, Kentucky. Audio processing, mastering, and original Foley provided by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Huey Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2022, WSF Productions, LLC.
0: all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more.
3: Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson... A young crime reporter from Charleston is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witching Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.